Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Mark 8. Mark 8, verses 27 through 30. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them, that they should tell no one about him. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, open uh, your word up to us today. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would open our minds to the power of your Holy Spirit, to illumine us, to guide us, to fill us with a joy uh, for being your child. In Christ's name we pray and ask your blessing. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I have a different Bible up here, and this one apparently is slippier than my last one. This one keeps wanting to come after me. I'm going to have to change my style. Uh, Things are named after famous people. Everybody knows that, I think. Cities are filled with uh, names of stuff that are named after famous people. You might not know those famous people, but somebody does. And when you first move to a new area, you'll really kind of learn all of these things slowly but surely. When we moved here to Omaha, we didn't recognize any of these names of things, but then over time you begin to figure them out. Uh, The Rose Theater is named after Rose Blumpkin, the founder of uh, Nebraska Furniture Mart. Uh, Many of you might not know, but the Henry Dorley Zoo is named after a man named Henry Dorley. His wife gave money to the Uh, to whomever was forming the zoo back in 1964 and said, it has to be named after my late husband. And so 750 grand, that was money well spent, I think. Whoever's building all those other things in the zoo now, they're spending much more to have their name on things. Uh, Also, Jocelyn Castle, this was named after a couple that came out here from Vermont and he founded a, a paper company that supplied newsprint for like the whole West Coast for a long time. Uh, I've got others down here, but like the lake I live near, Lake Zerinsky, that's named after Ed Zerinsky. He was a mayor and and former senator. Uh, You could go on and on. But when we moved out to Millard um, in late 94, uh, we were way out in the boonies then. I had coworkers that told me I'd moved halfway to Lincoln. And we were a few miles beyond civilization, so to speak. And so we'd have to drive in for everything. And we typically traveled west center, but sometimes we'd travel in on Q. And when we'd come east on Q, we'd get towards 108th Street and we'd pass a road called John Galt Boulevard. And I just thought, here's another famous guy, probably local since I've never heard of this guy. Well, lo and behold, about three or four years later, I started reading the book by Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged. And the very first four words are, who is John Galt? And immediately I thought, well, that's the street that I passed on Q Street. And I thought, well, what's she writing about this guy for? So that was what opened my eyes to the fact that, ooh, this guy's a little different. This name is different. Not like, you know, Jefferson Street or Washington Street. I mean, you pretty much know who those are. So who is John Galt? As uh, the reader of this book, Atlas Shrugged, you're introduced to this phrase, who is John Galt? 
but they never mention a person. This is just a phrase. It's a phrase that has become popular. And if you've read Atlas Shrugged, I must, I must uh, apologize to those who are now reading it, if anybody is. Is anybody now reading Atlas Shrugged? Because tra uh, sales have tripled with what, you know, uh, as Gary mentioned, you know, with our uh, socialistic policies right now. Uh, Atlas Shrugged is a book that's popular in times such as this. And so uh, if you are about to read it, I apologize because I'm going to give you some spoilers. Uh, but I think it, the book would still be well worth you reading it. So this question, who is John Gold, appears. Page 1, page uh, uh, 9, page 16, you know, you just see it often. And in context, as we kind of figure out words and phrases when we don't have the chance to look them up, you realize that this is just a throwaway phrase that people say when they can't answer a question or when something is too hard for them or they just don't care. It's a phrase that people use to kind of end a stream of thought. They'll be talking about the problems that they're facing, and then one of them will just say in exasperation, oh, who is John Galt? So it's an interesting phrase, a way that she's worked this phrase into her book. As the story unfolds, you get well into the book, and yet some of the people that say, who is John Galt, say it differently than others. They say it with a glint in their eye. And by the midway point of the book, the protagonist of the book finally learns that this is a real person in this fictional book, of course. But so this is a person in this mythical world that Ayn Rand has created. And learning that this person was real is an epiphany for the main character. It really kind of changes everything and her view of everything. Uh, this is a topical sermon. And when I went down to Lincoln, to the folks that we were, I was meeting with regularly, I told them, I'm not going to do topical sermons. They're too hard. I said, I've tried it here at Dominion, and it's really hard. But I'm not in Lincoln, am I? So I, I, I figured I'd, I'd do a topical sermon while I'm coming up here. But uh, I will reference a lot of Bible texts, but I will not exegete the text that I read as introduction, where Christ asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? I wanted that to set the tone of curiosity. Who is Jesus, who is John Galt? I'll tie these two together down the road. And I do want to give you some background on Atlas Shrugged, though, because for, for any who haven't read it or for some who have maybe read it long ago and can't remember it, uh, it is a backdrop for all of what I'm going to discuss. And so I think understanding a little bit about it will be helpful. This... Uh, was a book written by Anne Rand, and it was published in 1957. It took her quite a while to write it. It was her magnum opus. She was already a very successful writer. She had written something called The Anthem, another book called Fountainhead. And so when uh, Atlas Shrugged was printed, I think it was printed with 150,000 copies first, and that's very unusual for books. Uh, most books have a 5,000 copy printing, the first one. They don't know if it's going to be successful. Now, if you're one of the people that everybody knows, then, of course, you're going to get a lot more printed. And that's the way it was with her. So, it is what's called a dystopian novel, as opposed to a utopian novel. In a utopian novel, everything is wonderful. In a dystopian novel, novel things aren't so wonderful. And so she painted a picture of a world that was an alternative to our own that she felt could be a potential world that we're heading towards if policies such as she was hearing bandied about in the 40s and 50s were acted upon in the West. In this dystopian novel, most of the Western nations are referred to as the people's state of. 
And so it's the people's state of Great Britain, the people's state of France. So you can see where this has gone. Everybody has embraced socialism in a big way. You're, you're really chronicling, this book chronicles the death throes of capitalism because capitalism is kind of like the golden goose that has quit laying eggs and now they're carving pieces off of it because they're hungry. Uh, it is a demonization of personal ambition and wealth. It's nationwide poverty with people uh, each year by year losing their jobs and then not being able to find other jobs. Uh, centralization of power into a, a single monolithic state which passes all of these laws that then give more power to this centralized state, which of course leads to corruption and it leads to abuse of power. So now in order to get anything done, you need to know these people in government. And so you need to bribe them in some way. You need to, you need to uh, manipulate the levers of power in order to really live your life. So the characters, the protagonist is a woman named Dagny Taggart and she's the vice president of operations of a railroad a transcontinental railroad, which, by the way, we don't have in this country. But uh, she is the vice president of operation, and, sh and she's really the brains behind the thing. She's the energy and the brains behind this railroad that her grandfather founded like 50, 60 years earlier. And this railroad is kind of being run into the ground by all of these government policies. The antagonists are many. They're pretty much all the collectivists in and out of government that think they know better than everybody else. And initially... Her major antagonist is someone she nicknames the Destroyer because he is stealing all of her most valuable people that are keeping her company going. And she comes to learn that this is John Galt, eventually. Now, the main premise of Atlas Shrugged is this, and I think this is out of a 1,380-page book. This is what you want to remember. Uh, what are the bright and ambitious to do when the world is taken over by the mediocre? and they kind of have their way, and they really want to keep the ambitious and the bright tethered up like so many milk cows and just keep drawing that milk out of them, never really allowing those cows to realize the fruits of their own labor. So this is what the bright and ambitious do, and this is what John Galt did. He went on strike. The uh, blue-collar workers had been going on strike for 60 years, and they'd been gaining a lot of power and influence over everybody because of this. And so this is what John Galt said he would do. And I'll get to how it came about here. But over the course of about 12 years, he slowly convinces lots more people, the brightest and the best in the country, who have really founded and are, and are, and are generating wealth, he convinces them to go on strike with him. And then they disappear into this enclave in Colorado that they have this... Now, this is kind of a sci-fi book, too. And so they have this like visual uh, illusion that fills in this whole valley in this big mountain in Colorado with what appear to be mountain peaks. And so from above, you can't see it. It's all invisible. And supposedly one of their bright guys had done this a few years earlier. So that's how they can all go on strike and then just disappear from off the radar in this country. And also this was kind of before modern computers, you know, so Andy Rand could project this and make it believable, I think. But now John Galt was a blue-collar guy, or at least his dad was, I'm sorry. But he grew up, his dad was an a assembly uh, line auto worker at the 20th Century Motor Corporation. So John Galt went off to college, came back with a degree, and he started working for the company. And he was devising an engine that converted static electricity to kinetic energy. And he was on the brink of coming up with a prototype of that engine when the three owners of the company collectivized it. 
and they had this big meeting where all 6,000 of the auto workers were in this big uh, building. And the chairman stood up and said this, this is a crucial moment in the history of mankind. Remember that none of us may now leave this place for each of us belongs to all the others by the moral law, which we all accept. So see, they're all mutually accountable. It's one big family and you can't leave the family. John Galt stood up and said, I don't. In other words, he doesn't accept this. And immediate silence. He said, I will put an end to this once and for all. And then he started walking out of this big building. Clip, clop, clip, clop. And the chairman calls out, how? And he says, I will stop the motor of the world. John Galt had invented this engine, and yet it wasn't fully functional yet. And so when he left the company, he took this knowledge with him. And he went to his friend out in Colorado and was then able to use this engine to begin generating wealth in this little valley in Colorado. And he disappeared from off the face of the earth. But one of the workers that was there, and this is an excellent uh, illustration of the evils of socialism. One of the workers is now a bum, and he winds up in this Dagny Taggart's uh, fancy train as she's traveling out trying to get this railroad line built that's going to save her company and potentially the country. But everybody's against her. All the collectivists, they all have their hand out. They all want to manipulate her. This bum gets on and he starts to say, who is John Galt? And she says, I don't like that phrase. He says, I don't either. And he says, what's more, I think I'm one of the ones that created it. And she's like, what are you talking about? So she, he tells the story over about 10 pages of how this collectivization of the 20th century motor corporation destroyed everything. And if you read only those eight, 10 pages, it's a worthwhile getting the book to read it because it's just a, a very colorful illustration of how uh, sad people can become as socialists, how it denigrates them as people and how it's just any mechanism for dealing with it other than standing in a line or uh, greasing the palms of the people in power are doomed to fail. You can't really rely upon merit. That is a huge introduction. The one thing I really should mention is this. Uh, this book doesn't come without qualifications. Uh, she was very, very non-Christian. I wouldn't go so, to, so far to say that she's really, really hostile against Christianity, but she just kind of ignores it. It's irrelevant to her worldview. She introduced a philosophy to the world called objectivism, which uh, is just really faulty. It accepts the spiritual aspect of people, but it gives no credit to a creator. I mean, it's totally evolutionary, totally materialistic. But uh, I'll get to that a little bit later. But right now I want to say that I will go to Scripture, and I do have a topic that I haven't introduced at all yet that I want to pull out from Scripture. And then I have a second point totally related to Atlas Shrugged and the comparison between Christ and John Galt. So first, my first point is this. I want to review the four legitimate governments that God put on the earth. I think this is what is confused in Atlas Shrugged. This is what is confused in our society. And I believe it's what many Christians are confused by. And so if I can help to clarify uh, these four governments, I think it would be a useful use of our time this morning. So the four governments that are instituted by God for use on the earth are these. And I have an illustration. I, I, I can't put it up there, but there's a green circle, a blue circle, a yellow circle, and a red circle. Here is the individual, self-government. Right here in the middle, you have self-government. That self-government exists within the structure of a family. The blue circle is a family. 
that family exists within the structure of a church. That's the yellow circle. And then that church exists within the confines of some civil government or governments. Like for us, it would be city, county, state, federal government, that type of thing. So think of these as the four legitimate governments that God founded on the earth for us, for, for the benefit of society and individuals. So I'm going to talk about the formation of each of these. Now, I could point to hundreds of scriptures for all of these, but what I want to point at is their inception. So the individual government. Let me read a little bit from Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. In Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, we read this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this defines our role as individuals. God has given each of us a role on this earth. We all have jobs, so to speak. Even the littlest of us are employed by God directly. We are to take dominion of this earth. It's just a matter of how. How do we do this? How are you going to do this? This is your job. And God gives you that as, as a test of your ingenuity, a test of your creativity, a test of your uh, obedience to his word. So this is a role. In Genesis 2, 15 to 17, God gives them the garden to tend. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. We have a role, that is, to take dominion over the earth. And yet here we're given a responsibility, a way in which we are to accomplish that role or fulfill that role, and we're not to do thus and such. So he's confining us, he's constricting us, he's testing our obedience. So then, of course, we know the fall. Adam and Eve disobey. And yet, in their being cursed, they're being judged for their failure to take serious their responsibility. So now we're getting to accountability. God has an accounting of what he's giving us to do. So we have a role and a job. We have a uh, responsibility to do that job. And if we don't do it, God holds us accountable for it. Or if we don't do it in the way that God wants us to. We have the same picture in Cain. When Cain had killed Abel and God comes to him and he says... Uh, where's your brother? And he said, am I my brother's keeper? You know, the answer is yes, to a great extent. We are our brother's keeper. And yet in this sense, he's talking about his brother. Our responsibility to one another is, of course, greatest at our family level, at our church level, at our neighborhood level. My brother doesn't live in Africa. Not, not 0.1% maybe, but when God is holding me accountable for my interactions with my brother, who's he talking about? He's talking about people that exist within my sphere of influence. And yet, to a, to a small degree, any citizen of the United States, their brother is all over the world because we have gotten involved in all the world over the last hundred years, big time. So we have a responsibility there. We may be uh, doing things well or we may be doing things poorly. I've mentioned before that I read a book called The Road to Hell. And it's just that first phrase from The Road to Hell is paved with good intentions. And it's about this liberal who had gone over on all these non-governmental organizations over to Africa to help. Well, he saw how these NGOs help. 
They just destroy nation after nation. And he had enough of it, so he wrote this book. He said, we've got to stop doing this. We're destroying all these nations. So to some small degree, we're all culpable in that. When our NGOs and when our government gets involved and starts pouring money into some poor nation over there who has starving people, but we dump all that stuff on the ground and fly away and the warlords come with their machine guns and their trucks and they start divvying it up, all we're doing is propping up these horrible regimes. So we have a role, we have a responsibility, we have accountability before God. This is all having to do with individual government so far. I, I kind of let go with that one to get to corporate civil responsibility. But then we go on to the formation of the family. The woman is created in Genesis 2, 18 and 24. The woman is created to help the man and then the two become one. So we have the formation of the family and family government. And we could go obviously into the New Testament and talk at length about God's instructions for the family. But so we can see here, we have a legitimate government in the individual self-government. We have an, uh, a unique government with the family. Church. I think the interesting uh, point, the first point in the Bible where we really see the church coming into play is in Genesis 14. It's after Abraham has captured Lot and all of his goods and come back, and then Melchizedek shows up, and he grants him a tenth of the, of the tithe. Um, he's referred to as a king of Salem and a high priest of God. So I believe here's the first instance where you have a man worshiping God and yet being aided in that, serving God through somebody else. Prior to that, with Adam and Eve, Noah, uh, Abraham, uh, up to that point, you had seen them as family patriarchs. You had seen them as the priest of their home. So you really don't get outside of the family. You don't get outside the blue ring. But with Melchizedek, you see Abraham get outside of the blue ring. He gets into a form of church, a form of, of there being an organization that is bigger than the family. Now then we could go on, of course, and talk about Moses and the formation of the Old Testament church and then the Christianity coming in and kind of displacing that to a great extent, but becoming the church of God. Third form of government, individual, family, church. And the last one, of course, the one I think all of us are somewhat uncomfortable with these days, and that's civil government. But God, really, in, in 4, where he punishes Cain, demonstrates the power of civil government. God exercised it himself in this regard. He exercised mercy upon Cain. He did not kill him for having killed his brother. And then in Genesis 14, we see the concepts of kings. It was the war between the kings with the Lot being taken captive when his king lost. And uh, there we also have Melchizedek being referred to as king of Salem. Uh, Joseph in Genesis 41 is put in charge by Pharaoh and he's second highest ruler in all of Egypt. What we see here is power, power structured for the benefit of civil society. And these were all blessings of God. They were all given to God for our benefit. In Exodus 18, you had Jethro advise Moses that he needs to appoint tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands. And Moses did. And what's interesting in that text is uh, Moses records that it was God that had commanded him to do so. He saw in Jethro's advice the words of God at play. So here we have again some form of structure. Now at that point, that really sufficed for both civil government and church government during that period when they were in the wilderness. And then it began to separate as they moved into the future and went on to judges and, and kings. But I just wanted to show you that these are the four governments. And now I want to talk, though, about why we hate all these governments. It's because they all are defective. They're all sinful. And it starts with that green circle right there. 
it's defective. All of the others are defective because all of the others consist of green circles. They're all defective, though. And so, see, that's what we need to talk about. Cain killed Abel. This was a hatred from within him that came out and spilled out into civil society. So it destroyed family. It destroyed church. It destroyed civil government. It essentially penetrated every one of those levels, his act of murder. Uh, the family government, husbands and wives argue all the time. Parents become estranged from children. Children fight all the time. Uh, oftentimes, this is what happens. So this shows that uh, families are defective. And the further we drift away from God's word, of course, the more defective these families become, the less they're being able to be held together by the power of God's word and his spirit. We have the church. We have pastors abusing or neglecting their duties. We have people abandoning the church because they're fed up with it. They, the church is filled with hypocrites, they say. So they want one less hypocrite to fill a seat in the church so they don't go. In the civil realm, we have leaders, and obviously here is where we get into real trouble because this is where, in a collectivized government, all the power tends to gravitate to these people. This red ring tightens and tightens and tightens and penetrates into all these others in many, many ways. And this is evil. It's green circles that run amok in the red rain ring there. And so that's the world we live in, where every one of these governments is defective. And it's easy for us to become disenchanted with all of them. And yet, when we do that, and when we want to just kind of you know, move out to a mountain valley in Colorado, we're giving in to something that I think God doesn't want us giving in to. We're becoming elitists ourselves. We're really rejecting society because we feel we're better than it, and we're not better than it. We are it. We are our society. Our government politicians are reflections of us. They, when, you, when you take the polls, it's just amazing to me how liberal America is. Sure, they might not be as liberal as, as some of the people we're electing to Washington, but they're pretty liberal. And so we are the part of the problem. And even we who are Christian, uh, we don't get it right. We get screwed up a lot. And uh, we make mistakes, and we get angry, and we violate these boundaries. For instance, one of the ways that I think that is most common for us as little green circles to conflict with other little green circles is referenced when Christ said, why do you judge another man's servant? Why do you judge another man's servant? In the parable where he tells of hiring workers and they all get a denarii at the end of the day and the ones that bore the heat of the day, they're so outraged. And yet the worker had promised them a denarii. He gave them a denarii. What are they so upset about? Because they thought they were going to get more. He is not free to do what he wills with his own stuff. They have a hold on him. They're going to make him see reason. They're going to strike, right? We all try to influence one another. We all try to broaden our borders, so to speak. These green circles have enough trouble in and of ourselves. We don't need to be trying to control other people. But yet it's just our nature. Everybody that's going faster than me on the freeway is an idiot. And everybody that's in my way because they're going too slow is a jerk. I'm the one that's traveling at the right speed. The world revolves around me. And if I so happen to be driving around the countryside one Saturday and I'm not in any rush and I'm going more slowly, then they should, they should calm down. Why are they in such a hurry? Relax. But if I'm on my way to work and somebody's in my way and they're only going three miles over the speed limit and I want to go seven, why, they're jerks. Why aren't they over there in the right lane where they're supposed to be? We just really desperately want to control everybody. It's just our natures. It's our fallen natures. And so 
as you have these feelings well up in you, recognize them. Recognize that you're trying to control things. You're trying to control things that God doesn't mean for you to try to control. And they'll drive your moods. They'll drive you crazy. You don't want that, do you? You don't want to be crazy. You want to be sane. You know, let everybody else go crazy. I tell you, in driving, that's one of the hardest things for me to do is to not accelerate and try to keep anybody from getting in. It's just against my nature. I've got to relax, relax, Rod, let them get in. You know, yes, I, I realize they're on the phone. They're not paying attention. They're idiots. Let them go. You're an idiot too. You know, I, 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 you really have to preach that to yourself or else we find ourselves we're one notch above everybody else. We're one notch higher on the realm of being loved by God and accepted by God and we're really getting there. We're, we're achieving perfection on earth. It's wonderful. So we've got to fight against that, just in case your kids might get confused when I kid. Okay. Uh, the four governments can be abused. I've already hinted at that. Uh, this illustration kind of conveys size relative. It's hard to find one diagram that can convey everything. But this shows how they all overlap. You know, the governments all get intermingled. And if you've been watching the news lately, you know one instance where this is the case. There's this girl that ran away from home in Columbus, Ohio. A 17-year-old girl growing up in a Muslim family has become a Christian. And her father, allegedly, according to her, threatened to kill her. So she fled to a church in Florida. So now you've got individual government, you've got her. Family government, you've got her father's authority over her. She's 17, she was still living in the home. You've got the uh, church authority, perhaps the Muslim church that she was perhaps still a member of in Columbus. You've got the Christian church down in Florida that's taken her in. And then you've got the state of Ohio. You've got the state of Florida. And it's a big mess. Why? Again, if everything were perfect, if all jurisdictions worked out well, this would never happen, right? There wouldn't be Islam, frankly. And so <laughs> what, what we're talking about is living in an evil world in the midst of evil things. So we've got to deal with this as best we can, and yet it gets really ugly and tempers flare. So we've just got to recognize that this is the way it works on this earth. The biblical emphasis in regard to the four governments, I think, is a little bit different. And it points to something that's true in the Reformed faith. It's a concern that many people in the Reformed faith have. And this is it. As individuals, I would say that the Old Testament and the New Testament kind of cover our responsibilities somewhat equally. Both the Old and the New Testament bring pressure to bear upon the individual. They hem us in. They define us. They define our roles. They define the sins. They say what's right and wrong. The whole Bible is filled with that. Proverbs, filled with that. Paul's epistles, filled with that. Family, I think they're pretty much emphasized equally in the Bible. You know, family is as important and as well illustrated in the Old as in the New Testaments. Church, they're both emphasized, but obviously somewhat differently. In the Old Testament, you had the church being emphasized through the law. And in the New Testament, you have the church being emphasized through the grace of God. It's really just emphasis. Um, grace was the heart of the Old Testament church. It's just people forgot about that. The law kind of kills it off after a time. And then we have the last one, civil government. I believe civil government is very, very clearly illustrated in the Old Testament so clearly illustrated by God that he chose not to illustrate it again in the New Testament. Why bother? He'd already shown you how countries should be run. He'd already shown you why governments need to have good laws. And yet, the Christians that kind of are like New Testament-only Christians, they just think that God is silent on civil government. It, it's absurd. 
The Old Testament is filled with lots of wisdom on the proper actions of civil government. And so many people whose Bible starts at Matthew don't really have a clue when it comes to civil government. And too many Reformed people act like that. It's very odd. I mean, I've always considered Reformed people to be somewhat monolithic and at least thinking that the whole Bible applies to all of life. And that's not the case. Many Reformed people restrict the Bible down. goes down in the New Testament. And then, oh yeah, the Gospels are for the Jews. Yeah, we don't need those. I mean, it's just bizarre what people do. So, let me find out where I am. Um, where we get into trouble is with Uh, confusing the jurisdictions of these governments. Jesus, when he's speaking to people, he is almost always speaking to people as individuals. He speaks to the church, but typically he's pointing at the Pharisees and scribes and rebuking them for having run that yellow ring poorly. He will look at individuals and sometimes he'll tell them, you should do what the Pharisees say, but don't do what they do. So he's giving some advice relative to the church. But for the most part, he's talking about the green circle. That's what Jesus was on about. But when we get to Paul, you know, Paul is often talking about the green as well. But he's also often talking about the church. Paul talks a lot about the church. So he's talking about green, the individual, blue, the family, yellow, the church. He's really talking about all of them. But he doesn't talk too much about civil authority. And again, we have the whole Old Testament that's filled with lots of good examples of that. And yet, what I wanted to get at is this. Many Christians in our country regard welfare as something that the Bible advocates. State-run welfare. But it's not. It's exceeding its jurisdiction. That is not a jurisdiction that the civil government should even be involved in. That's for the churches. That's for the families. That's for the individuals. They all have that responsibility to one another, but not the civil government. And that's where we get confused. Now, back to Atlas Shrugged. When I, when I read this book, I, uh, I, I, I can't say that I'm an overly critical person. I, I, I read something and I really enjoyed it. I watch movies, I mostly enjoy them. Um, and then I'll tell somebody and they'll say, oh, I hated that movie. It, 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 and I'm like, oh yeah, it does have all that. You know, I guess I never noticed. But uh, I'm, a half, I'm a glass half full type of person, I guess. Which is not what I was 10 years ago when I was all obsessed with Y2K. You know? So I thank God that he's turned me around. He's, he's got me looking at the other glass, I guess. But uh, Atlas Shrugged portrays the evil of a socialistic government so well. I really, I really like the fact that it's being sold, but it does have a very poor Christian message. Don't get it for that. Essentially, in Anne Rand's world, in her book, there is a green circle that fills out the blue one. There's a red circle that fills out the yellow one. So you've got green and red. That's pretty much it. And they're battling one another. The red ring is trying to kill the green ring. And, the, and some of the green people, they're like, okay, fine, I'm leaving. I'm taking my ball and going elsewhere. So that's what her book's about. So don't view anything from a church or family perspective about it. But it has been very influential. I was surprised. Um, many people in a survey regarded it as the second most influential book in the 20th century, second only to the Bible. I mean, if you haven't read it, it's interesting, but I mean, it was 50 years ago. I just had various people, I like to read, and I'd had various people tell me I should read it, so I did one day. Um, and this is one of the quotes. And I, I like this quote, I think it's a good quote. If you ask me to name the proudest distinction of Americans, I would choose, because it contains all the others, the fact that they were the people who created the phrase to make money. No other language or nation had ever used these words before. Men had always thought of wealth as a static quantity 
to be seized, begged, inherited, shared, looted, or obtained as a favor. Americans were the first to understand that wealth has to be created. I like that quote. That's a good quote. It's not the end all and be all, of course, but it's a good quote as far as it goes. And so the reason I like this book is that it portrays the evils of socialism really well and it portrays the virtues of capitalism very well. And I would much rather be a, a capitalist than a socialist. But you don't want to be a bad one of either one of those. Now, I want to get to the similarities between John Galt and Jesus. Uh, just a few of them here, especially if you haven't read the book, I think it helps you. Humble origin. You had John Galt, who was the son of an auto assembly line worker, and he went on to become a success. You had Jesus being the son of a carpenter. He went on to become a success, I think we would all agree. You have both of them being uniquely gifted. This uh, John Galt invents this amazing machine that converts kinetic energy or static electricity into kinetic energy. And it's going to work at like a tenth the cost of any other fossil fuel engine that is out there. And you had Jesus healing people and performing miracles. Okay, Jesus edges ahead, I guess. Uh, you had a visionary leader, John Galt. He both uh, conceives of this strike and he executes it really across the whole country. And you have Jesus leading thousands, speaking to thousands of people in the Sermon on the Mount, leading these 12 uh, apostles and directing them. And then he had kind of that second ring, really, the, one, the 70 that had gone out. Uh, very, very good leaders. Uh, brave fighters, courageous fighters. You had John Galt, who opposed in the book what are referred to as the looters and the moochers. So John Galt didn't take this lying down. He fought them throughout the book. And you have Jesus, who took the scribes and Pharisees to task. I mean, when you read Matthew 23, it's like you cringe. Ooh, ooh, you hypocrites, you Pharisees. I was like, wow, he really, he really takes them to task. It's no wonder they killed him. I mean, they just really, he, he called them what they were and they didn't like it. Not in public. That isn't what you do in public. In public, you smile. You know, you write about them as being evil and you know, maybe put, put a pen name to it, but you don't call them out in public like Jesus was doing. And another similarity, which actually begins with the very first line in the book, is... Both of their names are used in meaningless throwaway phrases. Who is John Galt? His name had become a byword in this phrase that meant nothing. And Jesus' name, it's on everybody's lips who don't even know him. They just use it in a profanity and a curse and they, they think nothing of it. So both of their names are being taken in vain, let's say, or being used in popular culture without thought or meaning. Differences. I have three differences and they kind of all, it could, it could all collapse down to one. It's basically selfishness as opposed to selflessness. Um, but I busted them up into three categories. Uh, John Galt is proud and prideful. That, that thread runs through the whole book of Atlas Shrugged. That's her main point, is that people deserve to be proud of their accomplishments and they need have absolutely no guilt at their success. I would agree with both those statements, but if you read the book, you'll see what I mean. It's taken to unhealthy uh, ends. But yet Jesus humbled himself beyond measure. We will never know the depths to which Jesus humbled himself to save us. It's just amazing to think of what the God of the universe did, the person who created the, the whole world and everything in it, what he did for us. John Galt is self-centered, extremely self-centered, and yet Christ is selfless. John Galt is self-serving, and Jesus is sacrificial. So, again, these are three manifestations of the same thing. And let me point out through excerpts from Atlas Shrugged and through excerpts from the Bible, a few of these. First, verses 
Pride versus humility. John Galt said this. Pride is the recognition of the fact that you are your own highest value and like all of man's values, it has to be earned. In other words, you're nothing unless you succeed. That's what I read there. To, to succeed is everything. To fail means you're a failure. It means you're nothing. Let me read it again. Pride is the recognition of the fact that you are your own highest value and like all of men's values, it has to be earned. Whereas Jesus said this, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Versus uh, self-centeredness versus selflessness, John Galt said this, and this actually appears as etched in granite over his powerhouse out in Colorado where it hides his secret kinetic, uh, static to kinetic energy thing. And it's actually the oath which anybody that enters that valley has to say in order to be allowed to enter. They have to swear this oath. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man nor ask another man to live for mine. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will remain an island, essentially what he's saying. Paul, speaking of himself and also uh, quoting Jesus, said this, You yourselves know that these hands... Oh, I'm sorry, this is Luke. You yourselves know that these hands... Oh, and it's, I'm sorry, it's Luke quoting Paul, quoting, quoting Christ. That's too long, I can't remember that. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul said, you must support the weak. And yet John Galt said, I swear that I will never support the weak. The last one I have as a contrast is the self-serving versus sacrificial. John Galt said this, my philosophy in essence is the concept of man as a heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life, with productive achievement as his noblest activity and reason as his only absolute. That's just rank humanism. That is man as the pinnacle of all things. That is John Galt's philosophy for life. And this is Jesus's. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's from 1 John 3, 16 and 17. As I said, I love this book, but it is flawed. It doesn't have the governments biblically defined. Uh, individualism is like I described. She wants that circle to be huge with maybe a little tiny red ring around it of just whatever is amenable to everybody. Uh, family and church are irrelevant. The individual is everything and civil government is not to be trusted. Now, we might agree with that statement. Uh, trust but verify. My uh, advice, my wrap-up in all of this is be a capitalist. I urge you, be a capitalist by all means. D but don't be a John Galt form of capitalist. Don't harden yourself against everybody that's in need. Not everybody is a moocher or a looter. There are some. And it brings that out in us when we all think we're getting free stuff. You know, I always talk to people about how the states all think that they're going to give money to the federal government and get more back. Well, you know, not everybody can do that. You know, that's pyramid scheme thinking that tells you that. And so it's foolishness. 
But, you know, most people buy the lottery tickets, too. And I guess I would regard that as foolishness. But, uh, you know, people do foolish things. First uh, John 2, 15 to 17 says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So this text, John tells us in this text, not to love anything in the world. Can we do that? We're commanded to love one another. Mike's in the world. I love you, Mike. I'm violating that word. Of course not, right? It's again, you know, you have to take the Bible at what it's telling you. God often exaggerates in the Bible. God often uses contrast to make us think. What is being said is this. You must love God more than anything else on this earth. I love God more than Mike. I'm sorry. I have to apologize to him. But we all do, right? We all must love God more than our wives, more than our friends, more than our jobs, more than our stuff. And I have a funny story to tell you here. I was listening to a book on tape a couple years ago by Paul Tripp, the man that does the uh, counseling. And uh, he, I guess, is a musician. And he's fairly well off, I would assume. You know, he's very successful. And so he has some, some disposable income to spend on cool things. Well, he loves guitars. And so he found this guitar that, I don't know, it had many st- strings. I was trying to look it up and I couldn't find it. But it has like some weird number of strings, like nine or ten, whatever's weird. I don't even know how many strings guitars have. But, uh, but he loved this guitar. I mean, he talked about it all the time. And, and so within like a week or two of having it, he'd talked to everybody about it. He had it in this special place in his house and all was well and good. Well, one day the fire alarm goes off in his house and his wife screams at him. He runs and gets his guitar and runs out of the house. His wife and family are in the house. And he does this. And then he tells about it on this tape. He's an honest man. He, he said that was his heart's desire. It had been his heart's desire from the time he bought it. And yet here he is divulging that his wife couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I think if she'd believed in divorce, he'd have been history. But he's out in the yard with his guitar. And he still doesn't even remember to go get his wife and family. So then he sees his wife and family coming out. And he realizes that he's erred grievously. So this really, God tests where your heart is. He tests Paul Tripp's heart that day, and he failed miserably to the shame of himself and and to the shock of his wife and kids. But uh, God will test all of our hearts. Where is your loyalty? Is it with God or is it with anything else on the earth, anything else that you hold dear? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this word uh, from your Bible. We thank you, Lord, that... uh, You have blessed us with uh, such a great treasure in your word and in your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Uh, We ask you, Lord, to open our eyes to this treasure, uh, that we would thank you for it, appreciate it, and that we would not be as the John Galtz of the world, that we would not shut our hearts off from the world, but that we would love, even as we oppose the wickedness that's going on, Lord, that we would not do it out of hatred, but that we would do it out of love. We ask you to be with us now to bless this day for your service, to bless all these people, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.